This is the L3 Leadership Podcast, episode number 132. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 131 of the L3 Leadership Podcast. My name is Doug Smith, and I'm the founder of L3 Leadership. We're a leadership development company based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we are devoted to helping you become the best leader that you can be. In this episode, you're going to get to hear our question and answer session with Ed Greffenstedt. He is the CEO and CIO of the Dietrich Foundation. If you weren't able to listen to his talk, uh, I would encourage you to go back to episode number 131. He gave a talk called Big and Small Leadership, which was phenomenal. Um, but before we jump into that, just a few things. If you're new to the podcast, uh, we come out with three or four episodes every single month to help you grow and develop your leadership skills. So we encourage you to keep tuning in. And if you've been with us for a while, I'd really appreciate if you would subscribe and whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and leave a rating and review. It really does make a difference. I want to thank our sponsors, Bab Inc., uh, led by my friend Russell Livingston, who is a phenomenal leader and is extremely passionate about developing next generation leaders. Um, Bab Inc. is an insurance broker, a third-party administrator and consulting firm, and uh, they actually host all of our monthly leadership events, and uh, they're just a phenomenal company. So if you have any insurance needs or want to connect with them, they do some really unique stuff with organizations. I think you'll love them. Just go to babins.com. That's B-A-B-B-I-N-S.com. Um, and with that being said, if you want to stay up to date with what we're doing at L3 Leadership, you can just sign up for our email list at l3leadership.org. And let's just jump right into the Q&A with Ed. Again, just a little ba- bit of background on Ed. Ed is a trustee of the Dietrich Foundation, as well as its president, chief executive officer, and the chief investment officer. He's also a trustee or director at Carnegie Mellon University, the University of Pittsburgh, the Hillman Company, the Hillman Family Foundation, and he's also a member of the investment committees of UPMC, Carnegie Mellon, and the University of Pittsburgh. That is quite an impressive resume, and uh, you're just going to love this time with Ed. So enjoy the Q&A and I'll be back at the end with a few announcements. So my question, my name is Connie Capiotis. I'm with an organization called the Social Media Advisory Council. A um, little bit of background, we do uh, training about um, digital citizenship, cyberbullying, prevention, cybersecurity, and online privacy. Things that are very topical right yep. now. We're kind of the, the little engine that could. We're a very small organization. Um, I am really run, um, really driving this forward, and I'm coming from a business background into the nonprofit world. So my question for you is, how can someone like myself in a position of small leadership in the nonprofit world connect and really get on the radar of the wonderful individuals like yourself that are big leadership in such a huge pond in the Pittsburgh area? So you're looking for... Uh, board members? No, we're looking for partners. Um, people that want to work with our organization to help spread our message. Um, yep. What are we doing? Okay. <laughs> we are, we're looking for organizations that want to work with us to spread our message, um, organizations that can benefit from helping users of all levels of technical ability to better understand their digital lives and right. how to manage their digital lives. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> if if you're looking for um, you know ex- an opportunity to uh, raise awareness in the community as to what you're you're trying to achieve, I think you have to answer the question: Why is this important? Right. So um, that is going to be at the at the core of building interest, building passion, 
and ultimately attracting partners. Why? Not here's what we do, but why do we do it? Right? So I would spend some time thinking about that fundamental question, why? And, um, you know, back to Steve Jobs. Here's an example of why. He could have gone the other way and said, we make computers. They're nice computers. You should buy one. Instead, he went the other way and started out with, we are doing something completely different. Right? We're challenging tradition. So he went at the core, and we happen to make computers. So he went to the core of, of their organization's uniqueness, and that can only be done by answering the question, why? So I think to raise enthusiasm and passion and ultimately attract uh, partners, you need to, you need to go uh, to the core. Uh, in terms of practically how you get your, your message out there, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm in the best position to suggest how to do that. Um, money helps. <laughs> Um, but you know, finding opportunities to uh, to connect with some of the institutions in town. Carnegie Mellon obviously is uh, premier in the world in the technical fields. Uh, so I would scour the website and find out the right person, like Steve Jobs did. Find out the right person to call and ask. Say, can I come and have coffee with you? I want your insights on what we're doing and how we can raise awareness in the community about our mission. Um, I would start there. I remember correctly, you had talked about how Andrew Carnegie suggested dividing your life into three periods and yes. in your earlier period, working a lot on your skill set. And I'm curious because I myself have been through a couple different career transitions in different industries. And I was curious in your life, where how you picked which skills to work on. Was it your passions or interests? Was it your perceived career path or what you thought would help you the most? Right. And how you decided on what to focus on versus spreading yourself too thin on learning a lot of different skills. Oh, sure. Uh, first, let me give a little context for that. Um, so in the podcast, um, I did mention that Bill Dietrich, as I did today, was greatly inspired by uh, Andrew Carnegie. And Andrew Carnegie wrote a essay, really sort of a pamphlet, uh, called The Gospel of Wealth. Has anyone heard of this? It's not too long. Um, but it was really his articulation of, of his philosophy. And to, to distill it, he said a reasonable way to approach life is to divide it into thirds. And your first third, Caitlin's point, should be to develop a skill set or trade to the, to the best of your ability, right? To become valuable. And your second third, you should make as much money as humanly possible with that skill. And your final third you should give away everything you have. And anyone who dies wealthy dies disgraced. So that was his, his uh, philosophy, which I think has a lot of appeal. Uh, now to your question about that first third, um, 
I, I, I've often been asked about career path because mine may look disjointed in some way. I practiced law for five years, got my MBA, went into investment banking, corporate M&A advisory, and then I left and started a private equity fund. And then uh, Carnegie Mellon hired me to invest the endowment and manage the, the treasury. And then Bill Dietrich hired me to run a foundation. Uh, but when I look back on it, it wasn't disjointed at all. It just seemed like it made sense every step. And I think the best advice I got when I was young was related to this Andrew Carnegie idea. Every, every opportunity you come to in your early career, it's sort of an inflection point. Ask yourself when you have like, think of a decision tree, when you have a lot of different ways you can go, ask yourself which one is going to give me better experience, better transferable experience, right, that it will apply in a variety of fields. What's going to give me better judgment? What's going to give me better education? And all of these things, if you do this at every node, then it just opens up more and more opportunities to you, right, if you don't specialize too early. But every time you take, you approach an opportunity set, say, which one of these routes is going to make me more valuable and open up yet more doors to me over time. And if, if you approach every uh, node like that, I think you'll find yourself in a spot one day like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? This is great. Uh, because I think you're really going to be additive. The other thing I'll add to that comment, which you didn't ask, but I think is relevant, is I've been asked by people coming out of school you know, where should I go for my first job, right? Because I want to, I want to, this is so important, right? I, and I, I've said to more than a few lately, if they're, I hope they're in good health. If they're in good health, their life expectancy is probably well into their 90s. And I said, with the advances in medicine, if someone's 22 today, I can say with pretty good probability that the quality of your life is going to be very, very high into your 90s. So you have, are you ready for this? 70 years of potential work life ahead of you. Swallow that. 70 years of potential work life ahead of you. And you're probably going to have three to five careers. Right? That's 70 years. So back to the nodes, back to every opportunity you get where you say, I could go this way, this way. Add, add to your experience, add to your marketability, add to the transferable skills that will open up more doors to you because you're going to have a long, you have a long horizon ahead of you. Old Thomas Trippers Associates. Ed, thank you so much for your talk and inspiration there. Wondered if you might be willing to share what is the most valuable leadership lesson you learned through a failure. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I've tried to forget all the failures. <laughs> let me let me open that that drawer in my mind. I've closed. I think the greatest lesson out of a failure um, was at Carnegie Mellon. I was managing the endowment. And uh, as many of you might recall, there was a little global financial credit crisis in 2007, 2008. It was a little disruptive. Um, and managing a large pool of assets, we 
were stung, like all institutional investors, in a pretty significant way. Some of it was un- inevitable. You know, it was just... And some, we probably had some unforced errors. And I did. Uh, and managing the portfolio. And Jerry Cohen, President Carnegie Mellon, who I hold in the highest regard, one of the, one of the great men, I think the city of Pittsburgh doesn't realize, and, and Mark Nordenberg as well, the two of them did more for the city than I think a lot of people appreciate. He was my boss, ultimately my boss. And Jerry, President Cohen, was so wonderful in how he helped me and the rest of the senior management get across the river during that two years of global uncertainty. And specifically for me, you know, the first thing he did was he sat down with me and looked at me and he asked a very simple question. Are you okay? <laughs> I want to see some blood back in your cheeks, Ed. You're a little white. Are you okay? And it really just was that simple question of, I want to know how you're doing personally. Because he cared. And that gave me back to that sense of uh, safety, that circle of safety. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with a leader, and he's got my back, and he's asking me how I'm doing. And that was a great first question. And then we got into specifics of how we're going to prioritize to get across the river. Uh, but that, to me, was a great lesson for me to see a great leader sit down and, and reaffirm that circle of safety. Um, and and I, I can't imagine how that could have been handled better. So that was an example where I tripped and I, I was picked up. Sorry, I'm putting in for a question. Um, so when I looked, so your board is extremely impressive, but when I think about the responsibility of reporting to them, I'm sure that one of your points was don't lose your head. <laughs> How do you deal with that weight of responsibility, knowing that you know, some of the most powerful leaders in the world you report to were the results? And just what are some practices? Obviously, in this case with Jerry, he cared about you in that kind of upsetting part. Is that you seeing that consistently with leaders that you report to, or do you have practices that help you kind of unwind before you step into a room? Right. Um, well, I've often said that as remarkable as my board is. Uh, they don't put the fear of God in me as much as the prospect of Bill Dietrich coming from beyond the grave <laughs> and appearing at the foot of my bed in the middle of the night because he would figure out a way if anyone knew the man. So uh, that's the ultimate motivation. But I think how we've tried to handle it, because our, our ambitions are, are big. We want to generate the highest returns of any institutional investor in the U.S. And right now, our 10-year returns are ahead of Yale and Princeton and MIT and, and among endowments and foundations. We're right there. Staying there is exceptionally hard. <clears throat> so to deal with the pressure, uh, what I've done is every single board meeting, I remind the trustees <clears throat> what our goals are. And again, this comes back to setting priorities, setting expectations, communicating. And I use my two by two quadrant, two by two matrix. You know, I love those. I had one. Um, And I always show our trustees what we're trying to achieve. And, um, and, And I'll describe it very briefly. 
in, in quadrant one, top left, uh, it shows if, if we had adopted, uh, if we did adopt on a, uh, now an investment approach like everybody else, and the portfolio and the market was doing pretty well, we would have good but average returns. We would have good returns, but it looked like everybody else. And in quadrant two is we adopt, a, again, an asset allocation approach like everybody else, and the market doesn't cooperate. We would have poor returns, but look like everybody else. Right? You're not going to get fired in quadrants one and two. You're going to look like everybody else. Bill Dietrich wanted us to be in quadrant three, which was he wanted us to take an approach on, on, based on informed judgment, but do it in a way our portfolio constructed in a way it doesn't look like anybody else. We want to be independent thinkers. We don't want to think about conventional wisdom. We want to blaze our own trail. And if we're right, we're right and we're alone. Now, you can't possibly be in quadrant three without accepting the inevitable risk of being in quadrant four, which is being wrong and alone. And that's where you get fired. <laughs> So I show that quadrant to my trustees every meeting, and I say, folks, this is our mission. We are shooting for quadrant three. We want to be right and alone. Right now, we are right and alone. We've been right and alone for 10 years. There's going to be a period of time where we may be in quadrant four, wrong and alone. But that's a risk we're willing to take because of Bill's mission, because of his mandate. He told us. So that's laying expectations. So now I know in the future, if we do run into rough waters, and it's going to happen, I can't tell you when, but we're going to be in rough waters, our portfolio. I'm going to pull that out again. It'll be very familiar to my trustees. And I will say, I told you the day would come where we're going to be in quadrant four for a while, but where our goals are high, we're going for quadrant three. So we, we, I use that as, uh, as a, a way to communicate expectations. Um, my name is Bree. I work at Northway Christian Community, and um, right now we have the opportunity to work alongside of our pastor, all the young leaders, on a sermon series on millennials. So you said the younger generation. I'm going to narrow it down to millennials. Um, when it comes to small leader, big leader, what do you think the number one stumbling block would be for a millennial in those categories? Because you mentioned a little bit. Yeah. Um. I don't think you can sit down and, and talk with a millennial uh, without understanding and appreciating that they grew up in a world of information and uh, a speed of information that is you know, unprecedented in human history. So anyone who's old like me, 50, when I'm talking to them, I always have to appreciate the fact that they've this supercomputer that's in my, in my pocket has always been in their hand from day one. And I think that does affect how one thinks about um, time and how one thinks about investment of time. And I think there is a tendency for the millennials to not be as patient as they need to be. These skills, Caitlin asked about, how you develop them over a third of your life doesn't happen overnight. And I think, you know, the investment of time and effort and energy, it requires some patience too. 
So I think reaffirming for millennials, if it's worth doing, it's worth investing in. It's going to take some time. This isn't going to be a click of a click of a button. And I think just reinforcing that because so much of life today is just boom, boom. And I think that that patience is sometimes lost. Good. Anybody else? I know it's on the screen, but if you have a question, don't feel comfortable asking. You can text me. My phone's right here, and I'll answer for you. Kenny Chen. Yeah. Ed, thank you very much uh, for your time and for demonstrating leadership, big and small, yourself. Uh, I'm Kenny. I'm the program director over at Ascender, um, a recently rebranded uh, startup incubator and co-working space. Um, and in that capacity, over the next three months or so, I'll be traveling to at least 10 cities around the U.S., uh, maybe internationally as well, trying to uh, bring investors, companies, um, other interest over to Pittsburgh. Um, I'm not from here. I've been working here for about two and a half years, but have entirely fallen in love with the city and want to... Um, I mean, my focus is elevating Pittsburgh's profile as a global innovation hub. So for you, as somebody who's been representing the city uh, in that kind of a way and has been very successful in stimulating that kind of interest, what kind of strategies have you found to be the most effective in uh, convincing people to spend their time, energy, and resources here in this great city? Well, the... First, you got to get them here. I think um, there's nothing like coming through the Fort Pitt Tunnel at night. That's a great first impression, isn't it? Um, I think what, what I've done to try to introduce Pittsburgh to people is uh, describe it as follows. Um, it was the Silicon Valley of its day. The history here, the heritage here is unbelievable. We were the center of global innovation in the industrial age for a good stretch of time. That DNA is still here. It's not industrial, but it's the next, right? It's the technical. It's the, um, uh, the, the bleeding edge robotics and AI. That's not all of Pittsburgh by far, but it's there. And that ties back to the DNA of, of figuring out solutions to challenging problems, rolling up your sleeves, getting things done. In terms of culture, I've described picture people to Pittsburgh to people by saying we're the easternmost Midwest town. I think that's true. Midwestern qualities still resonate with a lot of people. Uh, there's, I think, their work ethic here. There's a collegiality. We all know the experience of stop at Pittsburgh and ask them for directions. They're more likely to take you there. It's just it's a Midwestern atmosphere, but you have all of this innovation, you have all of this, this uh, get it done sort of DNA around it. I think that's, that's the best way to sell it quickly. But getting them here and, and meeting the people here, um, I think that's the best way to go about it. I have a question. So you mentioned it here, but you also told the story in the interview. My favorite story that you've told is that you had lunches with both each other. 11 years, and all out of nowhere, I've been secretly interviewing you for right. 11 years, and I think you're the guy to, to run this. Can you just talk about, I mean, everyone in the room always wants to get mentored, they want to spend time with people. Can you talk about, one, what those meetings even look like from start to finish, or you don't have to go over 11 years' history? <laughs> and then two, just like I asked you in the podcast, 
what qualities did you display that you think kept him investing in you versus just saying, okay, like, great doing that, but, you know, I'm going to go spend my time with someone else? Right. Um, that's a good question. I, first of all, Bill was a remarkable guy. I'm not sure you'll find his equal uh, very often. But he was a man who measured, you heard the expression, measure twice before you cut once. He measured like six times before you cut once. So he was very meticulous in his planning. And I subsequently learned that there were two other people he was secretly interviewing for 11 years. In case I said no, he wanted, um, he wanted a backup plan. Um, but his question, his, his lunches with me followed, like typical of everything in his life, a very rigid structure. And it would start out with five minutes of small talk. Uh, and then it would jump into four or five very specific questions he wanted to ask me. And, and I found after the first couple of lunches that he liked this <laughs> This approach, it allowed him to get as much done in 60 minutes as he wanted to. It was a way of probing me, both for substance and to assess my judgment, I think, on how I was answering the questions. Um, and then after about you know, a year or two, I started to add my own questions into the mix. And then he began to allocate time for that. <laughs> so I think... Um, how do I universalize that observation to you all? I would, like Steve Jobs, find someone in this community, because, again, we're Midwestern. We're more likely to take the phone call than New York City people. Take, call up someone in your universe who is two, three, four stages down the road in their career than you are and say, listen, can I buy you a cup of coffee? How many people have done that? Maybe some of you have. You're, you people are up at 9 at 6 o'clock or whatever you have on a Saturday. <laughs> but I don't think a lot of people have done that. Just like his advice, call up someone and ask, can I have a cup of coffee? I just want to pick your brain about how you got to where you are. How many people don't like to talk about themselves? Are you kidding me? They will be delighted. Grab a cup of coffee, ask them. And in the course of that, you may discover that there is a rapport there and there's a chemistry there. And before you know it, it turns into a second cup of coffee and the third. And now you've got a mentor. And there's nothing more complicated than that. And I would do it with two or three people like Bill Dietrich did. <laughs> Maybe, you know, hedge your bets. Get a do, few do folks. Do you know other people now? Do, do competition? Uh, I do. I do. And they will not be named. <laughs> But uh, I do. But I think, I think that's, that's a good practical piece of advice. Take Steve Jobs' um, uh, inspiration. Call someone up and just ask them a coffee. And we have time for maybe one more, maybe two. Anybody else? Josh. Josh Fisher, I'm with Go Realty, a real estate private equity firm. Um, I have a tactical question around raising investor capital. As somebody who's been on both sides of that table, um, I'm assuming soliciting investor capital for your private equity firm and now being pitched, um, what are some best practices around that that you've uh, successfully utilized and seen other people utilize in, in pitching you guys? Um, maybe we should have coffee. <laughs> um, 
it's a specific question. Uh, I'm going to give you a sort of general answer, and then we can chat more later. Uh, I'll try to, again, universalize it a little bit. So it's, I think anytime you're selling something, and you're, you're selling a fund, you're selling access to a great investment opportunity. Anytime you're selling something, I think it's very, very valuable to get on the other side of the table in your mind and say, what would a smart, uh, um, skeptical person want to know about this product, this service, this opportunity? And anticipate those questions. That's not easily done, and, and a lot of times we don't like to do that, to get on the other side and, and role play in our mind. That's a lot of work, actually, to do it really well. But I think starting there, what would a smart, astute, informed, thoughtful person ask me and be concerned about? And then I'd come right out on the, on the first uh, or second page of your, of your presentation and tackle those head on. And I think that shows awareness as to the risks. It shows awareness as to you know, legitimate areas of concern. And um, I think that's a very credible way to start a conversation. Say, you know, we have, we have a great opportunity here. We recognize these are two or three uh, buckets of, of risk. And here's how we've mitigated those risks. Uh, here's how we're different. Here's how we're unique. Here's our special sauce that no one else has. Um, I think that's huge. And the other thing is showing being vested. And uh, anytime we consider investing in a fund, we want to know that the manager of the fund has a lot of their own money in the strategy, so we have a huge alignment of interest. And that's called, we call that home cooking. You're eating your own cooking. Um, so that's alignment is a huge part of it. Um, but we can talk more uh, over a coffee. Okay. And then the last question I always ask our speakers is, how can people in the room connect with you, serve you, be a part of what you're doing, or even pray for you? Well, I'll take prayers every day. Thank you. Um, and in terms of the Dietrich Foundation, we have a website, dietrichfoundation.net. Um, you can reach me through that. Um, the Dietrich Foundation is... I didn't mention this, but I should, um, and I'm eternally grateful for Bill for doing this. He wanted, as I said, to control it from the grave. So we have 15 nonprofits we are mandated to support in perpetuity. We are prohibited from adding anyone to that list. And he did that because he was thinking 50, 100 years down the road. He had no way of forecasting what the trustees might look like. But he wanted to make sure the Dietrich Foundation was true to the priorities he wanted, which is higher education. And he didn't want rogue or highly politicized trustees to take the Dietrich Foundation off into a direction that would have you know, made him crazy. So we are prohibited from adding anyone to the list. So unfortunately, some of you are involved in some great organizations that could require capital. Uh, regretfully, if you contacted me, I wouldn't be able to help you. I might be able to direct you to some other foundations in town that maybe have a broader mandate, but we're very specific. Um, so that, that does free me up quite a bit to focus on the investment portfolio because we're not constantly entertaining um, uh, requests for, for cash. Uh, but the Dietrich Foundation, no, the best thing you could do for us is just um, continue to uh, sell Pittsburgh we're putting 
uh, as as much money as you can imagine in our own backyard and scholarships and and in civic and cultural organizations because you know we want Pittsburgh to be you know the shining example to the world of what a great city looks like. So just keep doing what you're doing, and uh, you guys are a big part of it. Can we give one more uh, round of applause for Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, hey guys, thank you so much for listening to our Q&A with Ed. We really hope that you enjoyed it. Again, if you weren't able to listen to his talk yet, I encourage you to go back to episode number 131 and listen to his talk on big and small leadership. It was phenomenal. If you want to connect with Ed or stay in touch, you can go to l3leadership.org forward slash episode 132, and uh, you'll see all of his contact information in the show notes there. And if you want to stay with, again up to date with everything we're doing here at L3, we would love for you to connect with us. Just go to l3leadership.org and sign up for our email list and you'll start to get uh, all of our updates on a weekly basis. Once again, if you enjoy the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. If you would leave a rating and review as well as subscribe, it does make a difference. And as always, I like to end with a quote and I'm quoting Brian Houston, who's the pastor of Hillsong Church. And he said this, this is the leader's goal, he said. He said, if you can't lead yourself, you can't lead others. Leadership is proven in personal, family, and ministry example. I love that. If you can't lead yourself, you can't leave others. lead others. Hope you have a great day. Laura and I appreciate you so much and we will talk to you next episode.